Turn your Bibles Where have you turned already? All right, turn to Nehemiah. <laughs> Threw one out at you there. If you'll turn your Bibles to the last chapter of Nehemiah, that's back there like earlier. Nope, it's after Chronicles, sorry. I might be able to find it here. Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to be reading, uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. I was going to cut it off, but I think we'll just read the whole chapter. Nehemiah chapter 13, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read out of my version, New King James Version is what I'll be reading out as normal. God's word declares on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon... I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God, and the grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, For each of the Levites had the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and all the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouse Shelemiah and the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites Pedaiah and next to him was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah. For they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers do this? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take your daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations... There was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him, even him, to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember me, them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and have have the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. In the midst of a passage and a chapter, not chapter, a book, full of sorrow and full of judgment and full of rebuke and correction, we every now and then come across this light (laughs) of hope and of promises. And certainly the promises of God to judge are just as good and Precious as is others, but uh, when we come to these, they are going to take up our time. Um, they are not quite as frequent in Jeremiah as in some of the other prophets, um, like Isaiah, where they will come up quite frequently. Um, in fact, large sections of it talk extensively about God's uh, salvation and deliverance. Uh, we will have some um, going on here in Jeremiah. But uh, we want to take some time on really what is a very brief passage of Scripture this morning. But we want to develop it so you see the faithfulness of God and His offer of salvation. We often think about um, the gospel going out to Gentiles as a church-age thing only. And uh, that really isn't the case. And we want to talk about that, that there was really a very strong biblical basis 
for giving the gospel to Gentiles. And so when this issue came up in the early church, Paul had a lot of uh, historical evidence out of Scripture that he could found his arguments on. And that's why it's so disappointing when we come to passages like Galatians and and others where the Judaizers were um, so effective. And uh, even the statement of James in, in Acts that they are all zealous to keep the law when uh, we find so much evidence in the Old Testament. And we come to one of those passages today, and they are, it's a precious passage, and it's one that uh, makes us understand the character of God, that he is not one-sided. It's easy for us in the book like Jeremiah to get the idea that God is just angry all the time. Uh, <laughs> but he's not. Uh, he is moved to anger, to wrath by the disobedience of his people and the sin of the nations of the world. And so we come to really see his heart and recognize that even in judgment, God is loving and offers us a means of escape. Even if we are the instigators in this case, and that's what we want to talk about, are the instigators of sin. Is there hope for them? The instigators of sin. And we're going to talk about them a little bit today because they, for the large part, I think, are your target audience for the gospel in this day and age. Before we get into that, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word that we have before us and its power, its truth. And Lord, we thank you for your spirit to guide us into that truth as well as to convict us of it. And we pray that he might have the liberty to do so, uh, and that he might work effectively to guard this time from error, opinion, from uh, our own ideas being inserted, that we might truly uh, come to know your word better because of our time spent together here and your work in us. And Lord, we do pray that uh, you might uh, motivate us today through your word, not only to appreciate and enjoy our own salvation and its calling in our life, but also to see the need of those around us and that you have a desire to reach them as well. And so we pray you might uh, work in us to that end. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in Jeremiah chapter 12. I broke off last week in verse 13. I have to back up because it just doesn't feel right if I'm not on that black line. I don't know why. Um, This is right now. I can do it without thinking about it. And so we want to read the the balance of this chapter of Jeremiah 12, beginning verse 14. And uh, you say, well, it's a great light passage, but it starts off with something against all my evil neighbors. Um, Well, that's who you're dealing with. And so let's go ahead and read these verses as we get into it. It says, Thus says the Lord, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people in Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be, after I have plucked them out, that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, every one to his heritage and every one to his land. And it shall be, 
if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. And so we have in here a very stern warning, and we have directed now the word of the Lord, not just to Israel or to Judah, but now we have him speaking of someone else. And you might think, well, the neighboring evil that are going to do wicked things to Judah are Assyrian Babylon, but that's really not who he's referring to here. That's not the nations that he's talking about. They are going to be his instruments to do the work of war- that he is warning them of what's coming. He's really talking to the true neighbors of Judah. And so when you think about who's around Judah these times, um, and uh, we, we have an idea that there were, were a number of leftover Canaanites, if you will, um, we obviously think pretty quickly about the Philistines that always seem to be a problem for the judges and, and early on, especially with Saul and David, um, and even to some degree, although Solomon pretty much quieted them in that era. Um, and we find that Israel surrounded by others, her neighbors, who did not recognize, even though they had a great respect for, sometimes more respect for the God of Israel than Israel did, Um, They didn't worship him. They didn't recognize him. And we find that this is something that has dogged Israel for (laughs) centuries. Uh, This has been a problem. And we can go all the way back to Joshua and Judges and find out what the problem is. What is the problem? Is that they didn't cleanse the land of all of the Canaanites. In fact, in Judges 3, um, God talks, well, let's go there. Judges 3. We're going to have you use your Bibles a little bit today because I want to do a little perusal of some of the background of this offer of God so you can recognize how special it really is. Oh, I'm in Joshua 3. What is going on with me today? Judges chapter 3. We find in verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the words in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in the mountain of Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And here we go, verse 6, they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. Now, we could very easily, if we had just kind of stopped at verse 4, said, well, so they apparently had some success, or uh, they had an opportunity for success, Israel did, to stand for the Lord. But we find that the first uh, description of them living 
with these neighbors around them is that the first thing they do is they intermarry with them, something they weren't supposed to do, and start serving their gods. And this is a theme that we have from this point in Judges all the way through the passage we read earlier today in Nehemiah. All the way through that, we have this incursion of the gods of the neighbors of Israel into her people. And it is often perpetrated through these mixed marriages. And uh, this is how it's described here in Judges right away. This is where it happens. In Nehemiah, he points out probably the biggest example of this. And Nehemiah says, listen, even the wisest one of the godliest men around that we have in our history succumbed by this one single act. What is that single act? Well, the guy is Solomon, and we all know what the single act was. It wasn't a single act, it was about a thousand acts that he did. But he intermarried. He married all of these gals from the neighboring nations, brought peace upon all those things, and kind of extended his rule over them by that mechanism um, that he used, but he had all of these women, and the Bible says it turned his heart from the Lord. Here's a man who God says, tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. And God gives him, who asks God for wisdom, and God gives it to him. And he is renowned throughout all of the, the world Um, Not only for his wisdom, but God says, because you didn't ask for all this other stuff, I'm going to just tack that on because I can. Wealthiest of the kings of Israel described silver as if it was just rocks. Because it wasn't gold, it wasn't anything during the time of Solomon. But the intermarriage turned his heart away from the Lord. And the very problems that started so far back, early in the book of Judges, persisted. And when Nehemiah was confronted with it among these, the exiles, he is quick to take action. And you might say, Boy, he kind of overreacted, didn't he? I mean, he's beating these people. He's pulling their hair out. He's kicking them. He, I mean, he is just going berserk on these guys, kind of overreacting. No, he's not. And our passage today is why he's not overreacting. Because he had to have known this passage of Jeremiah. And he talks to the people and says, Listen, this is the danger This is the danger. When you come into these close unions with others, and that's why in the New Testament, by the way, this is a principle repeated in the New Testament. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own, right? So you're going to glorify God in your body. One of the ways is do not be unequally yoked. That's not just marriage. Marriage is the strongest of those yokes, but don't be unequally yoked. In other words, don't don't be tied in, in, in union with others that are not serving the Lord who is God. And that union can be your, if your closest friends aren't godly, aren't following after Lord Jesus Christ, you're an error. That's a union. 
that if it's precious in your sight, will lead you away from serving the Lord. It'll take time, but it'll gradually happen. And the other instance that Nehemiah talked about was Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? That's the guy that the donkey talked to. Remember that guy who was going up to, he was hired to go up there and curse Israel from the mountain? And what happens? God makes him bless him, and the king says, Hey, I paid you good money to curse these people, and now you're blessing them? I have to say what God makes me say. And so, at the end of that, and why Baalaam is still so evil, and is still a very, is pretty much a curse word among the Jews, was the advice he gave to that king. I can't curse them for you, but all you have to do is be a little sneaky and be friendly towards them, and eventually your God will wear off on them. And that's the advice that's followed, and it was effective. When the world is friendly toward us, who call upon the name of the Lord we should come to it with great suspicion. Because the historical tendency has never been for that relationship to make the one godly. It is always to make the other ungodly. That's how it's worked. And I've encountered a lot of people over the course of my ministry and read other accounts that, oh, I'm gonna, we're gonna go out there and be friendly with them because I want to reach them for Christ and, and I want to, that means I'm gonna spend time with them, I'm gonna dress like they dress, talk like they talk, listen to what they listen to, watch what they watch, and it goes on and on and, and, and I've seen people, well, you know, he'll change. I'm dating him. Well, he's not a believer. Well, he'll change. I can make him. No, you can't. (laughs) You're trying to do something that God doesn't do. God doesn't make people change. And we're going to talk about that a little bit here shortly. And so um, we have this idea that I can come into close association with the world and it won't rub off and that somehow we're going to rub off on them and it doesn't work. It works in reverse. And we have this lengthy trend here in scripture um, beginning here in judges and we have the and really before judges when we get back in in exodus and in joshua we have this incursion this subtleness of i'm going to come in and befriend you with the idea of you know well we can do this you serve your god well that only lasts for a little while and then pretty soon there's the pressure and the influence and your children all of a sudden don't even know the right language, let alone the right God. And yes, the world is willing to wait generations to take God out of your family. They're willing. They're patient. It's insidious. That's what they'll do. I had a friend that was up in Utah and was into a very strong Mormon community course and um, because he had a great job offer and uh, took a real strong position and um, here's what one of his neighbors says 
That's okay if you don't want to become Mormon. Your children will. We'll get them. And he packed and left. It's like, should have thought about that a little earlier. And so the idea of losing generations to the world because we did not take a stand today of separation from them, that there should be a distance. It is a distance that certainly we can call them to salvation across that distance, but there is a distance that is necessary nonetheless so that we can remain unstained and can remain pursuing God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind, without the influence and the perversion that they would seek to insert there and to muddy those waters. This is what got Israel in so much trouble in that day. And so God says these nations were evil nations. These neighboring nations were evil. They led you into this sin. They brought you into the worship of Baal. They, they destroyed you, and it is their working. They instigated this against you. You succumbed to it, and you won't leave off from it. You are resisting every prophet I send you, and now judgment must come. And that's the order of what happened. It started over here by these influences. Maybe they started a little innocent, but now it's been a couple of generations. We've had some intermarriage going on. We have these really tight relationships. And then we have syncretism. I'm going to worship their God and the true God. When I was a very young man in ministry, ministering at camps, even before I came to Mexico, and even early on in Mexico, I remember young people just warring with me. I mean, they would get visibly upset that I would tell them, you're no different than the world. Well, we got to be like them to reach them. I was like, really? You have that? A scripture verse for that? And of course, they pull out Paul to the, but if you read that, it says, it doesn't say to the sinner, I'm going to be a sinner. To the Jews, the Gentiles, men, women, slave, free. But he doesn't say, I'm going to become a sinner to reach sinners. No. You're called to walk in the light, to be holy as he is holy, to have a separation that I can call them out of darkness into the light. He doesn't call us to leave the light and walk into the darkness. Because once there, you're in deep trouble. And so this has been the pattern. And so we begin to see this relationship that here, when God says these are the evil neighboring peoples, this is what they've done to you. Ultimately, it's kind of their fault. They started this and for at least one that we know for sure purposefully did that. That's what Nehemiah refers to. Don't you know this is the way of the world to get Christians and to get the people of God and destroy them? How do you destroy the people of God? Entice them away from serving God. There's a Navy SEAL, retired now, and he's been on several programs, news. A lot of times they bring him in when they're talking about some stuff with um, 
going on with the war and terror and stuff like that. But a uh, strong Christian man, he's written the book uh, Seal of God. And uh, goes out there very vocal for the gospel. And uh, is confronted frequently and... Um, <laughs> Just entering conversation with people at the mall, and mall security comes and says, you can't do that. It was like he wasn't handing out any flyers. He didn't have any sign. He wasn't preaching. He was just talking to people and having conversation with them and introducing the gospel and engaging them. So you have to stop doing that. It's like, why? Because we don't want you to do that. This is private property. And, of course, there's been on and off again the Supreme Court can't decide whether malls are public spaces or not. Right now, they're not. Um, back in the 70s, they were. So the court can't decide. Surprise, surprise, the court is moving towards quieting your rights and not exercising them. And to hear them attack this man as though he were the enemy, and this is what this guard says, I'm more of a Christian than you are. I just don't have to be out here being loud about it. And here's what this more of a Christian had to say. The Bible says you should be quiet. And the guy's like, where in the Bible does it say that, that I should be quiet about the gospel? <laughs> of course, he doesn't know the Bible at all. He says, all through the Bible it says that. And he starts quoting verses to him with, with the references. The guy walks away. I'm calling the cops. But you see the security guard, and he's the really one, pulls out, reaches in and his collar and pulls out, and he's wearing a necklace with a cross. See, I'm more of a Christian than you are because I wear a cross under my uniform. But I have nothing, no idea what's in the Bible, and I don't, I'm going to interfere with the gospel being shared in a private conversation in a mall. At some point, that's where we've gotten to, is that all the world wants you to do is stop being such a radical Christian. Don't be so biblical. Can't you just get along? It would be so much easier if you just got along. Yes, it would for them. For you, it would be a disaster. It would bring judgment. And so that's the evil that's out there. And we don't often see them as evil. We see this as just a cultural thing. Um, But this is an evil that is out there that is being perpetrated against the people of God on purpose, and it is a patient evil that is willing. And so, here's what God has to say. All of you neighbors who have been touching the inheritance I caused people of Israel to inherit. So you've been coming to the land, you've been doing some evil things there. Here's what I'm going to do. Yes, I'm going to judge Judah because they haven't walked in obedience to me, but that judgment isn't just going to be on them. It's going to, I'm going to judge all the way to the root of this problem. I'm going to judge all the way to that root, and not only am I going to take Judah out of the land, I am going to clean the land of all of you as well. And that's pretty much what the Babylonians do. They come in and they just clean everybody's clock. I mean, you either do it their way or there is no highway because they're, you're their way or the ground. That was your choice. And they come in and so God says, I'm going to pluck you out of the land, their land. And as that happens, and this is, this is a wonderful promise here. And this is where the light starts to glimmer, shine. 
And so God's going to take everybody. He's going to take the whole kit and caboodle of the evil neighbors and Judah who has gone after the gods of Baal and disobeyed and, and played the harlot spiritually after them and sometimes physically. Um, and, and even the righteous remnant, he's going to take them all, he's going to extract them from the land, and then he's going to use Babylon to do something, and that is to isolate Judah from all these evil neighbors. You see, God wasn't just trying to punish them for their sin. He was trying to set them up for a future. As he's punishing them, and in the midst of that punishment for their sin, he is setting them up so that they could be secure 70 years from now, another generation or two later, so that there would be a a Judah to save. And so he says, well, I'm going to tear you guys out of their land too. I'm going to, then as you are out of the land, I am going to pluck Judah out from among you. So now Judah is going to be isolated from all of these ites that we read there in Judges. The Perizzites and the Hittites and the Gergesites, all those ites, um, they're going to be isolated from them. They're going to be carried off to Babylon, and there they'll flourish in isolation. And, And this is almost identical to what God did a few hundred years earlier when Israel moved down to Egypt. Remember what happened there? Under the Leadership of Joseph, he's like, you know, don't tell them that you're shepherds. And the first thing they walk in is, we're shepherds. Joseph was a very wise man, but he wanted to get along with the Egyptians. He knew what it took to get along with the Egyptians, but that's not what God's plan was, to get along with the Egyptians. And the first thing the boys show up is, we're shepherds. And Joseph's like, oh, face plant. You know, what did you tell him? Now, well, we don't want you near us. Go to the land of Goshen. Just stay over there. And it kept them separate. And they could flourish. And they became a separate people within the land of Egypt by that mechanism. That the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, which is kind of funny because right now there's a lot of sheep in Egypt. But um, same thing here. God says, I'm going to punish you, but I'm also going to punish all these people that led you into sin. The instigators of your falling into sin are not going to inherit the land. They're going to be Wiped out too, so that you can be preserved. I'm going to pluck you out separate, so that you can be isolated enough to be guarded from this sin for the next 70 years. And you do not find, by and large, the nation of Judah intermarrying with the Babylonians. You just don't find it. It's not until they really start coming back into the land that that becomes a problem again that you saw in Nehemiah. And verse 15 begins, that after I pluck them out, that I will return, now or 70 years later, have compassion on them, and bring them back, everyone to his heritage, everyone to his land. God says, I'm going to bring Judah back into the land. They're going to be plucked out separate. The land is going to be desolate. It's going to be empty by and large, for 70 years, there's, there's going to be very few people around. Um, and most of them are, are not going to be tied into these nations. And they're going to be certainly under the empire rule of Babylon. And even the Medes and Persians 
later on. And then verse 16, even to this evil group. So we have this wonderful, in the midst of judgment, I'm going to preserve you and do you good. God's faithful. Now, he's going to judge his people, but preserve a remnant for their good. He's going to judge the instigators of their sin, too. You might say, well, they don't deserve any grace. Well, I would agree with you, but God doesn't agree with you. Verse 16, and it shall be, if they, and the they there is not Judah now, he's going back to the evil neighbors. If they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. Isn't that a wonderful offer? What he is saying is that you have instigated all of these problems and my people who failed the test. I left you in the land to test them. They failed the test and they went after and disobeyed me and went after your gods and, and allowed you to influence them more than me to influence them and my word and my uh, spirit. And so they instigated, but it would be an easy thing to just destroy you and I'd have every right to do so, but I also offer you this Salvation. I'm going to preserve Judah because I'm going to come back years from now and rescue her out of Babylon. And they're going to come back into this land because this is their land. I'm faithful. But this generation's got to be purged, much like the generation that had to die in the wilderness because they disobeyed the Lord. Once they were gone, then the younger ones could come into the land under Joshua and Caleb. But we find that God offers them a way of salvation. These evil Canaanites that we have learned nothing throughout the Bible except that they should be killed, slaughtered, men, women, children, critters. Slaughter them all. We have learned nothing of them and And out of that background, God comes in and offers them this. Through his prophet Jeremiah, says, all you have to do is make make me your God. Make the God of Israel your God. As you experience the judgment as well, right alongside of Judah, and as I isolate Judah from you, now I'm going to give you this offer, and that is that if you will repent, if you'll turn from serving Baal to serving me, if you will learn the ways of my people, that is, if you will identify yourself with Israel, I'll save you. You will have a place in this kingdom. You will have... Uh, a home, a salvation. You will be established, as the word he's used, in the midst of my people. And again, we have historical evidence that this happens. The most blatant and obvious one that we quickly go to is Rahab. I mean, here's a city destined for complete destruction. 
and God has one family, one lady who leads her family out, uh, who trusts in the Lord. And we find her in the line of David, and then obviously in the line of Christ. Why? Because she adopted the God of Israel as her God. Another very obvious one we, is the book of Ruth. And the events there. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. The offer has been there. All the way through, God's pattern has been that all who desire, whosoever can come. Whoever comes. But you're going to have to come my way. And look at it. You're going to have to learn. I love this. Learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives. You're going to have to invest yourself fully in this, that this is going to be defining who you are, that now you are no longer that person, but you are a follower of the God of Israel. And we have some other very exciting examples of that um, that we've talked about a lot before as well, all the way back to, uh, since we've already mentioned Joseph, to Pharaoh of, that Joseph fell under. The God of Joseph, he's the God. He's God. And we have Naaman. He says, I'm going to take some Israeli dirt home with me so I can worship the God of Israel back home in Syria. And in the future, to Jeremiah, this passage, Nebuchadnezzar responds to Daniel and gives his testimony, and it's in your scriptures. It's probably one of the fullest testimonies of salvation in the Bible, and it's written by a Gentile king. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar, author of some of your scriptures. God's grace is marvelous. Isn't it? You can be the cause of getting other peoples into sin, and he'll still offer you a way of escape. But you're going to have to learn thoroughly his ways. That means you're going to have to fully repent. You've got to turn away from that completely and pursue him entirely. We call that getting saved, being born again, reborn, getting rid of that old life, starting this new life. And that's exactly what he's offering here. If you will get born again, then you will have a place. You will be established in the midst of my people. You will have a place in my kingdom. It's the exact offer that we go out to this world with. You are evil people and you deserve to be judged and God will judge you. But he offers us that if you will carefully learn the ways of God and turn it completely away from what you were to what he desires you to be, that there will be an established place for you in his kingdom. That's our message. Isn't that the gospel? This is a gospel verse. And so here's Jeremiah. You know, we just got done dealing with all the sin and all, you know, how did that hell happen and the abandonment of truth. And, and we went through that whole process and, and we come to this verse and it's almost out of place, but it's exciting that here in the darkest of the dark, where even Jeremiah is going, oh, do you have to start with my own family and your judgment? And, and, and God's challenging him. You know, don't you understand? It's total necessity. Yes. And then this little blurb that isn't so little, is it, now? It's the John 3.16 of Jeremiah. 
God so loved the world, every nation, even these evil people that led his own people into sin, that whoever will learn his ways, will trust his ways, Jesus, will be saved, established among his people. You see, this is the kind of verses that Paul had to approach a largely Jewish church and say, don't you see, God has always wanted to reach any who are willing to follow him. And what has gotten in the way of that is really our prejudices as Jews over the law. And it's our pride that has kept it. And so instead of seeing them as potentials that need to come to Christ, who need to turn learn the ways of God, um, we just dismiss them and call them Gentile dogs. And when we come across them beaten up on the side of the road, we go out of our way to avoid them instead of caring for them and seeking to reach them and expend our resources on them. This passage, what a precious little verse tucked in here that we could easily just buzz right by, but it's too valuable. And there's a bookend here because on the other end of it, there's a warning. If you don't obey, God will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation. So there is a temporal judgment which is pending. It's, it, Babylon's on its way at this point. So that judgment is pending. It's coming. But if you don't respond, there's going to be an eternal judgment too. There is a permanentness to this if you don't respond. And that is one of the driving features of what moves us to share the gospel with the urgency of this is that... Um, we can explain there and, and confront them with their sin and its circumstances and, and uh, the penalty that they're already feeling, they're already uh, experiencing. And that's one of the reasons jail ministries are so effective because those people know that they're suffering from their own sin. And so we talk about the, the current effect of sin, but ultimately we have to warn them that if you reject this offer of deliverance, there is an eternal punishment. There is a permanentness to God's judgment. He is righteous in doing it. And he is wondrous for offering you this way of escape. And you can say, he's not our God, so what right does he have to judge us who aren't his people? And what right does he have to obliterate us as a nation down the road? Um, well, this is the right he has because he is the God of all. Whether you acknowledge him or not. So he has every right. And the wonder and the excitement and the thrill is that in the midst of this scene where we would expect God to just destroy them like Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes in and says, oh, I'm going to 
judge you now and give you an opportunity to respond in the midst of that judgment to give you an established place among my people or eternal judgment. So when we see God's hand move against sinners this side of glory and we see them suffering the consequences of sin, and even punishment for sin, I would challenge you to use this verse. Not to say, ha ha, you got what you got coming to you. That's the prideful Jewish thing to do. To see that guy beaten up on the side of the road and said, ha, he probably deserved it. And go around him. Or to see them beaten up on the side of the road and said, listen, you're experiencing judgment for your sin, but it can get worse. But the good news is you could be established among the people of God. Just learn his ways. Learn to follow Jesus. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Turn your life around. And that is what we confront people with again and again, this choice. But notice that it is a choice. Even the instigators of sin are given this wonderful chance to be numbered among the people of God. I'm going to go back to Rahab in closing. I want to remind you from Proverbs and other passages what she would have been doing. Every day, she would have been out at the corner enticing young men into her bed that Proverbs says is the way of death. As a prostitute, she would have been an instigator of sin. That was how she made her livelihood, was to get men to be either unfaithful to their wives or fall into immorality as young men. She was an instigator of sin. And the judgment was coming, and the fear had fallen upon all of Jericho. And she encountered these spies. And the fear was heavy, not just on the city, but on her. And she saw an opportunity. And she asked, I'll save you, but when you come back, will you rescue my family? Will you save us? And of course, you know the story. She lets them out and they tell her, put this scarlet fabric outside of your window and we'll identify you and no one will harm you and all who are in that house. The instigator of sin in the city of Jericho. Remember, this is a city slated for destruction because their evil had grown so great that God didn't want anyone to live out of that city. They were to be dedicated to the Lord, that is, every single person and thing destroyed and burned with fire. And out of this city, that it was perhaps out of all the cities of Canaan, first on God's list of judgment, he rescued an instigator of her sin. And 
And she learned the ways of God. And she followed him. And she had a place among that people. And as I shared earlier, that her name isn't just in your Old Testament. It's in the genealogy of Christ. This is the wonder of the grace of God. To not just say you're going to get what you're going to deserve to people that we encounter in the Jerichos of this world. But to go with them with the compassion and say you're in trouble and you should be and you should be afraid because you should be because you're in sin. But God offers you a way of escape. You're going to have to learn a new life but there will be an establishment in his people that he offers you instead of permanent judgment. And that's our message that we go with. And I want to challenge you to have that spirit of this verse here in the midst of all the judgment and desolation and all the bad stuff in Jeremiah we might look at and be discouraged by. We have this wonderful verse. And an idea of understanding this is who our God is in his fullness. Yes, he's wrathful, he will judge, but he's also merciful and loving and he offers a way of escape even to those who instigate sin against his own people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for its power and for its faithfulness and its balance. And Lord, um, we thank you for this response to Jeremiah and to the Canaanites around Judah who had enticed them into sin yet now could be rescued from it. We pray that we might have that same spirit as we encounter people even those who are experiencing the horrific results of their own choices and their own sin is starting to cost them already that we might go to them with this offer before the last judgment that they might turn and learn your ways to be established among your people. Give us that heart to communicate this truth to those that we encounter. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.